months. It's such intense work. Long hours, people are tired, the pressure is constant, and a week goes by, and suddenly you feel like everyone's family. And for example, I had someone at the end of the shoot come and hug me, and he said, like, I love working with you. And that was so rewarding. And I think that's why I used to enjoy it so much. It's like you put up with the pressure the long hours, but in the end, you become such a close, tight-knit family. Hello, and welcome to Inside Out the podcast about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. Hi, friends. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you're having a great morning, day, evening, or whenever you're listening. Today, we've got a jam-packed episode filled with great stories and career inspo, so let's dive right in. Today's guest is Jero Beckar. He's an entrepreneur and filmmaker from Buenos Aires. He started out his career in film. He got his degree from Emerson College, then headed straight to Hollywood to work at two of the biggest studios, Warner Brothers and Walt Disney. While at Disney, he got to work on a show that ended up becoming Disney's first iTunes commercial. He then took his technical filmmaking experience back home to Argentina, where he co-founded an LED lighting company that produced fixtures for train stations and big clients like McDonald's, Starbucks, and Puma. Jero thought he'd never go back to school, but he ended up at Harvard, of all places, in the Master of Design Engineering program, or the MDE, as you'll hear us call it. He was interested in mental health and learned about the gaps in our healthcare system in the U.S., which led him to co-found Hika Therapeutics, a tech platform for mental health care providers and patients. Here's Jero talking about how he brought his Argentinian food culture to Boston. We make such a culture around meals. Uh, I don't know if it was my particular household, but breakfast was always a thing. Uh, maybe lunch, we would have that in schools, so in, in high school or elementary school. So my mother or my parents wouldn't be there for lunch. But even like tea time, tea time for us, it was such an important meal. Like we would come back, my sister and I from, from school and my mother would be there with tea would be ready uh, because it was around five, so we would be starving. And, and then dinner as well. So, and then I think, trend, like I saw that in my college years as well, where my American friends would be like, you guys have like get together for all these meals. And they started joining just because they find it so warm and interesting to like get around food. Um, and I think that's something that we still do like, like uh, years later, 15 years later. <laughs> Here in, in Boston, my husband and I like do cookouts uh, pre-pandemic. <laughs> um, we would we get together with friends, we grill a lot and meat, vegetables. That's something that I think I miss, but I also we were able to bring it with us and continue sort of the culture around meals. Yeah, I love that. There is something about most other countries other than America that have some more of a food culture. I remember when I was living in France, I read this article about average dinner times in different countries. And I think it was something like France was about 30, 45 minutes. UK was like 15 or so minutes. And America was like five minutes, (laughs) which is a little sad to think about. But that's amazing that you were able to keep that routine and this kind of habit. 
Yeah, I mean, that's great that you share all those like hard data on, on the time spent, because I feel like here sometimes it's like something you have to go through in order to go back to work. Back home, I feel like, and, and maybe like similar to friends, it's something that you look forward to. You're looking forward to that like hour long lunch or hour long dinner. Yeah. And I feel like it, it really builds your relationship too with your family and people around you. Um, I do remember too, one of my college friends went to Argentina for study abroad, but she recalls that her host mom only cooked her meat <laughs> and it was very hard to come by vegetables. Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, maybe not so much now. I think things have changed, but like meat is such a part of the culture. Uh, you grab any cookbook or you look at like on chef's table they have Francis Malman that is a very famous Argentine chef and it's all about fire and meat it's very medieval or like all these big cows or sheep like entire cows by a fire and you see we sometimes see these things in restaurants that they have huge fires in the middle of the city inside with huge exhaust pipes or vents with like animals in the fire so yeah, it's, I think it's a change, but I wouldn't be surprised if they only cooked meat. Huh, wow. I mean, there's something very primal, but also very warm and familial about this hearth and having a fire. Yeah. Um, so at some point you took an interest in filmmaking. Were you always interested in movies as a kid and, and watching movies? So I think my answer will surprise you. Uh, it's not necessarily that I was interested in, make, in, in, in movies in particular. I was fascinated by the science behind a moving image. And I don't say moving as in like an image that moves, as an image that transmits so much fear or, or happiness or emotions. I was like fascinated by that. So I, that's where my interest started. I realized that there was so much physics and, and math behind how like lighting is calculated and, and like the color temperature. And that actually, I think that's why I wanted, uh, that's why I went into filmmaking. Sort of all of this work that went into an image to move someone, to move the audience. And that's why it was always in the more technical aspect of filmmaking. It was more into the photography aspect, which involved a lot of these uh, calculations and planning. Can you talk a bit more about that, um, maybe for listeners who aren't so familiar with the technical aspects, like what, what math goes into, say, uh, the color of a picture or how you put together um, an image? Sure, I think uh, one good example could be um, anyone can picture someone's face being lit up. And today in Zoom, everyone looks for these light rings. So it's very, there are no shades or at least no hard shadows um, and it's less dramatic. But once, if you want to create a, like the opposite scene and you want someone's face to be like lit up on one side and dark on the other, there's a difference in light. And that cannot just be random and you can just not just put a light on one side. You need to measure how much light is on one side and know the type of film or camera that you're using to determine if the side in shade is gonna actually be completely black and not show up or be too bright and not have enough contrast. So there are like rules and tables to like determine how much contrast you want, how much you need on each side. And that's just to let light up 
a face and a still scene. Imagine when you have moving subjects and like how lights change. So it can get very complex. I think it's, it's interesting how people ask sometimes, how come a film is so expensive? Why, like people think that you just put a camera there and shoot a scene and they don't realize that sometimes weeks of prep work go into one single shot, like a three second shot. Um, but yeah, that's, I think that, that's what fascinated me, the work that goes behind something that it might look simple or you could just sit through it in one, one to two hours. Uh, but it was the work of 2000 people over like five years, um, which I also found very interesting. Yeah, that's incredible. Is there a movie or even a scene that comes to mind when you're like, oh, wow, like this lighting is incredible and the work that must have gone into this? So I think it might not be necessarily related to lighting. It was more the first time I saw Jurassic Park in the theater. Um, I was a kid with my dad and I saw, I was like, I went through so many emotions. I was like, wow, this is fascinating. How can someone being sitting on, on, on a, in a theater go through so many emotions? So I think that sparked my interest. But since I've always been like this, and I think that might relate to what we can talk about next is my like how I ended up here, where am I at today, is this duality between something that's not necessarily tangible to so more like the feelings and the emotions carried by film, but also was also interested in the technical aspects and the, and the engineering behind it. Yeah, we can get to that for sure in a moment. Um, so you ended up going to Emerson College for a bachelor's degree in media arts. Uh, what do you think that did for your um, like your background as a filmmaker? Like, was it the technical aspects? Like what did going to Emerson do for you? I actually decided to go to Emerson or apply to Emerson in the first place uh, because I wanted to live in Boston. I had been here um, in Boston with my mother growing up a few times in, in the Northeast and I loved the area. Um, I wasn't too fond of the idea of going to California New York seemed a little daunting. Buenos Aires, where I grew up, is a huge city, so I wanted to more like the small town feeling. It's sometimes people laugh at me when I say I want to live in Boston because it has a small town feeling, um, but it does. Um, so, and Emerson was a great experience. It's a small school. You get to meet a lot of people, um, and you can run into someone on the street or in a class, and then you're going to see them again a hundred times over the course of a year or even more because it's such a small school. And that's something that I really appreciated. Actually something that ended up serving what my career well later down the road when I started looking for jobs because I realized how, that's where I started realizing how important those connections are. Yeah, it's funny. The company I work for now is founded by Emerson grads and about a third of the company is now Emerson grads. It's such a small community. It's like, oh yeah, it's you've got that Emerson connection. It is a very small community and I think that ha that is worth a lot. It, I mean, it has to do with even now in grad school, my experience in grad school, Harvard is a bit such a big place, but even like being part of a small cohort, you form these very close ties with people and that ends up being super valuable, like in the human aspect, both because it's rewarding and also because it comes in handy later down the road when, when, when I mean, you're expanding your network and tapping your network to get things done. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. So I want to get into the your experience in Hollywood. So after Emerson, you ended up working for two of the biggest studios, Walt Disney and Warner Brothers. Did you get in there because of the Emerson community as well? So I'll start with the most boring one, actually. Uh, so the Warner Brothers was, I saw a, a Warner Brothers producer was looking for an executive assistant, which is like just office work, but I was I wanted to get my foot in the door. And my, one of my best friends from school, his girlfriend was friends with this um, producer. So she made an intro. I interviewed for the job and I started working there, uh, which the, the, that's why I said it's the boring one because it's like actually not that exciting. I think the Disney job was much more exciting how I ended up there. It was pure luck um, to, <laughs> to Lux credit. So Disney, Disney actually wanted to create content for the iTunes uh, music store that was, at that time it was shifting towards uh, including video content. And Disney reached out to like the top five film schools in the US and they, they asked for five names. So one film director per school. So they basically interviewed a, a handful of film directors from these schools because they wanted to switch strategy. They said, okay, we're creating content for the, I, for the iTunes uh, store. Let's bring in an, like a young, fresh out of college um, crew. And that's never the case with Disney. They go with like highly experienced, like 60 year olds on set. So they interviewed someone from my school. She ended up getting the job and she called me. I remember I was in LA driving and she called me on my cell phone and I picked up and she said, hey, how would you like to be a director of photography for Disney? And I was like, what? Um, so to, so as, as I said before, this was pure luck. Like she, or to her credit, like she got the job. She's awesome, Pearl Weibel. And she called me and offered me the job. So yeah, that was a fantastic experience. We, I mean, as a director, she got to pick her crew. So I was the director of photography. So together we picked the, the rest of the crew. We were about like 40 people, I would say. Wow. Most, most from school, as you were saying, <laughs> right, from the right. tight Amazon network. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds like luck, but also the preparation of having known her from school and having done, you know, good enough work that she would remember you, all that. So that's really exciting. So you got to work on an iTunes commercial? So it was a commercial for one of the Disney parks, but they were, they were launching uh, what it looked like a, a TV series on iTunes, but at the end, after like a five episode series, it was a commercial for uh, Animal Kingdom. So it was a combination of like, uh, I guess it was just the beginning of this content that in the end is like commercial content, because this was well, 10, over 10 years ago, like 12 years ago. Would you call it like branded content? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I guess the direction that media and advertising are moving today is like it's a lot more in interwoven, especially with influencers. And so you have these series like I think of there's this one YouTube series where they film the whole thing on a cruise ship and it was like a little drama series. But the whole thing was to promote the Princess Caribbean cruises. Oh, I see. Well, yeah, that's uh, so. But the, at the beginning, uh, it wasn't it wasn't set up or it wasn't promoted as such. So you, anyone would start watching the series, and it actually looked like a a TV show. 
mm. until the end you would realize that it was uh, after like the five episode series would you realize that it, oh this was a commercial for animal kingdom yeah yeah so what was it like working on on that project and on set so the beginning, what was interesting, was shocking to me because I've never worked that way, is I went to one of the Disney producers and I asked, I asked her, like, what's our budget? And she sort of giggled and said, like, well, there isn't really a budget for you guys. Um, she, she said, like, just let me know what you need and we'll get it. I'm like, what? Like, I never worked that way. <laughs> there was wow. always like, a budget. So they were, and what was interesting is since we were an experiment because they never brought in such a young crew, they brought in the head of marketing from Disney corporate. So the head of marketing had us over at her house for, for dinner, the whole crew, and she would come on the trip with us. So like very senior people from Disney were coming to the film shoot with us. We shot in studios in Los Angeles inside an airplane. We shot in LA, uh, California, Disney, California, Disney, Orlando. Um, it was and they would come, they came with us the whole time. And at one point they said, you folks are on schedule all the time. And there was another film crew and they were all, all like older folks. And, and they were comparing us to the other folks that were like two, two days behind schedule, over budget. Uh, so it was a great experience. But one of the things that struck me the most was how close everyone becomes. It's such intense work, long hours, people are tired, the pressure is constant, and a week goes by and suddenly you feel like everyone's family. And for example, I had someone at the end of the shoot come and hug me and he said like, I love working with you. And that was so rewarding. And I think that's why I used to enjoy it so much. It's like, you put up with the pressure, the long hours, but in the end you become such a close tight-knit family that's kind of like startup life in a sense right but even more compressed timelines because you know it's like start date end date super uh you know trying to optimize everything and and yeah you have to become close with people or there's a lot of drama (laughs) actually that's a really good comparison although i would say on the film side I, I like the fact that there's an end date. <laughs> you, know that, you know that it's that intense for five weeks or seven weeks or three months. Uh, in the case of Disney, I think it was like about four months, including pre and post production. Uh, but at least you know there's an end date. Startup mm. life, it's like there's no end in sight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eventual IPO or, or something in <laughs> a couple yeah. of years. Um, so what did you end up doing after that Disney project? So after, actually, that was a time I took um, from Warner Brothers. I went back to Warner Brothers, but at one point I figured I wanted to go back to Argentina. I had been here in the U.S. for about five years, four or five years. I wanted to go back to, like, I miss my family, my friends. Um, so so I went back to Argentina and I noticed that there was a need for for lighting technology in the public sector. So I started a company that designed and manufactured LED lighting fixtures for commercial applications. It wasn't as exciting as film, but I saw that opportunity and I did that. I did operations in that company for seven years. So were you joining in another business or did you start this company yourself? Oh, I started that company with a a friend of mine who was a lawyer. Uh, This was somewhat of a legal regulatory and technology plays. So we were a good team because of that. Wow. How big did you guys grow? Um, so we 
run the company and so we start getting um government deals mostly around railroad stations that they were like at the time the government was remodeling the railroad stations so we had specific products for their needs and that's actually when i had the opportunity my then boyfriend at the time my husband now wanted to go and do and he also had his own business he wanted to do an mba so he applied to school here in the US, he got into MIT. So I was like, this is a great opportunity to get sell my part of the business and move back to Boston, which is interesting because when I left Boston the first time, I had this feeling where I was like, I'm not done with this city. I want to come back <laughs> um, because I loved it so much. So yeah, yeah life brought, brought us back to Boston and we moved to Boston in 25th, well, 2014, uh, looking for apartments. And I had to go back to Argentina to take care of um, the, the selling of my business. In 2015, I was up here with our Bernice mountain dog, Lula, at the time, for new adventures in Boston. It's a lovely little family story, but also power couple, you two, Harvard, MIT, both, uh, both entrepreneurs, too. That's awesome. And uh, just to clarify, with the lighting LED company, did you guys do the manufacturing yourselves? So we would uh, we would operate like um, like a car manufacturer. Uh, so we wouldn't do so. We would do the design, the operations ourselves, and mostly the regulatory stuff. Um, and we would outsource the manufacturing, the assembly everything we would outsource everything so very very lean on staff and i think that also translated into like what i'm working on right now which i learned to be super lean on staff and we had because every single company in our in our in our production line was optimized to produce whatever they produced so from the casings to the painting to the electronic components the assembly the distribution, everything was was outsourced. So we operated very, very lean. The designs, the and the the molding for the equipment and everything was ours. So we would pay for them, we would keep it, and that's. Uh, so we sold when, when I sold my part of the company. That's the there was IP around some designs and in tooling equipment. Gotcha. So you sold your company back in Argentina, moved back to Boston. And then at one point you were saying you never wanted to go back to school, but somehow you got pulled into this program at Harvard. <laughs> never say never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the moment you start say never, life surprises you. Yeah. So actually, uh, this, to, to the credit of a, of a friend of mine at, the, at Harvard Law, he, we were chatting one night, he said, hey, you should look into these new programs, the School of Design, School of Engineering, and like, uh, our, our, they have new programs, why don't you look at them? So I, that night, I actually looked into the MDA program, and the open house was the following day, and that's where I actually I met someone we had in common, Michael, um, and I was like, and I was very, very pleased with how it was structured. It's such an innovative way of thinking of putting together 15, 20 students tops from very different backgrounds from engineering, design. We had aerospace engineers, chemical engineers, architects, entrepreneurs in our, in our cohort. And it's super interesting to put those 25 people, well, 25 today, but at that time we were like 15, 
uh, together to solve problems, work together. And that similar to like film production, you become this tight knit family uh, with, uh, with this group of people. And also you get to take classes, the way the program is structured, you get to take classes anywhere at Harvard. So you could take classes at the Kennedy School, at the law school, the business school, and you create your own program basically. And you could see that reflected. We were all so different coming in and we all ended up in, in such different places as well in our careers. Yeah, I think for someone who is very proactive and knows what they want out of like a Harvard experience, that is like the perfect setup. You're right. You have to know what you want out of the Harvard experience. I don't know if it's a program that it's structured uh, for people who want sort of their path to be uh, lined up for them because there's very little structure. Um, so you need to put that structure yourself. Mm -hmm. What classes did you end up taking that you were like pleasantly surprised by? So one of the classes that was a surprise was uh, the science of behavior change at the Kennedy School. Um, so sort of like understanding how people make decisions. And for me, it was something that I, was, I wasn't familiar with. So learning so the, sort of the basics how we make decisions as, as human beings and how primal that is sometimes. It was super interesting, but we actually, it was at the beginning, we had to sign sort of like, uh, it, it wasn't legally binding, but we basically signed that all that we learn in the class where you're gonna use it for good. Because you can also learn how to do this and companies do this all the time, in particular like media companies, or not media companies, social media companies, Facebook, they know they have people in, in, in behavioral science basically designing things so they become more, uh, not necessarily want to say addictive, but yes. Mm. So it was interesting that they taught Rogers at the beginning of the professor taught, taught Rogers, made us commit that we were going to use that, what we learned for good. And that was very, that was a pleasant surprise, I would say. Huh. Do you think that works? Like signing your name on a piece of paper? Like, do you think that sticks with people? I would say it stuck with me. I still remember <laughs> that I did it. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I guess in the end, it's up to anyone. Like, if you if you're up for doing things that are like borderline unethical, and you're okay mm -hmm. with that, I think that speaks to who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. There's something about <laughs> writing something down, though. There's some. I'm not sure if it's proven research, but you know, you can read about how when you write things down as an eventual goal like most of those things you write down, you end up accomplishing. Let's talk about Heike Therapeutics. So how did this idea come about? Because that you started as a project during your MDE program. Yeah, so during the MDE program, I was part of the, so our cohort was the health systems cohort. So we looked at problems in the health system, mostly in the US. And since even when applying, I was interested in, in mental health. The, the, my application was around mental health. And during the program, I actually interviewed people undergoing mental health treatments. And I was shocked to learn how siloed and fragmented the system is here in the US. Uh, people will tell like very specific stories about their experience with like the first, how do they approach their PCPs or their general practitioners for, for help at the beginning of their journey as a, as a person going through this mental health 
uh, care system. And it's so fragmented that it makes the, the patient experience really, really bad. And there, it, it leaves millions of people untreated. Um, so yeah, that's where I basically said, okay, there's, there's, this is a huge problem. It's worth exploring and worth building a solution for it. And that's when I decided to work on HICA and where our mission is to better connect a primary care system with the with mental health specialists. I want to know what you wrote in your essay for the MDE application. So at that time, I was more I was interested also in mental health, but in the work environment, and if there could be ways of determining or, or measuring um, how how company decisions or decisions made in the workplace were affecting the workforce. Not a, maybe not at an individual level, but also could be as a collective level and, and how those things could be improved or changed. And so I looked into like, what if we had wearables that we could like measure, measure heart rate variability, blood pressure, or even thermal imaging cameras. And you could measure the immediate stress response of someone opening an email. Like this all sounds very invasive. This was just like hypothetical thinking of like, what if we could use all these biomarkers to measure how uh, decisions within the workplace affect people's mental health. So that was my, my idea, uh, which was sparked out of interest um, in the space. But of course, that evolves as you start like speaking with uh, people, patients and providers and you're understanding how the system works. And, and that was sort of like the idea that set the stage for what happened next. Interesting. I'm imagining you like getting flooded with an inbox of emails and getting <laughs> your blood pressures like spiking. Did this come like partially from your own stress in the workplace? No, actually it came, it was part by a friend of mine who's a founder who's, um, he sent out an email. I'm going to give very little detail. So, so there's no PII, uh, personal identifiable information. Um, so he sent an email to his like 120 employees, basically saying, oh, Monday is a holiday, but the office is going to be open and leadership is going to come to work. So his wife actually saw the email and was like, how can you do that? How can you send that to your 120 employees? They're going to, and I was like, that's so interesting. So probably everyone probably was like super stressed about that email that basically said, oh, it's a holiday. Feel free to take it, take the, holiday, the day off, but leadership is going to be in the company. So that's very conflicting. So it's like, I wonder if that actually caused stress in some people and had, could that be measured? So that was sort of what sparked this whole idea. Um, but of course, that was just an idea and it sparked my interest in the space. Yeah, I mean, that would definitely be stressful. Um, yeah, so how did this idea around um, mental health care and this disconnected system, how did that evolve into what you're building today? That's a, that's a really good question. And this is something that as, as, as a founder, and I think with my, my, my co-founder and my team, like you struggle finding this balance between, you see a huge problem that needs to be solved but then it's like, where did you start? Where do you, so we're starting with, we identified that providers, mental health providers that provide specific treatments have 
problems that lead to low treatment adoption and, and other more ad, admin, admin problems, which have to do with uh, insurance claims, reimbursement claims. So these have an impact on their bottom line. So that's sort of like our wedge into this market. We're solving for very specific problems and providers of emerging mental health treatments. And these are treatments that are like very expensive. They're so they're high revenue for the provider. So that means that we can solve these issues with data around data that they need for reimbursement. Um, that means that they can make more money. So that's our and that's why they decide to adopt us as a solution for their practice. So that's our wedge into the system. Later down the road, our, our more like a company, our vision is to expand into and reach primary care providers. So there's this gap between primary care providers and, and mental health specialists that usually, and this is how we started in, in the company, learning that people between a PC, between a primary care provider and a specialist, some get referred, but a big chunk or a big uh, portion of, of those people, they, they turn to Google and they, they go on Google, they, they Google like what their condition is and what they, their, their options are and others. And some of these providers actually put, um, put up flyers um, and, and billboards on and like, that's, there's clearly disconnect if providers actually have to go to that and they have really high customer acquisition costs and patient, patient acquisition costs because of this system. So later down the road, I see ourselves playing sort of like joining, helping join these two systems uh, between the primary care system and mental, mental health specialists. Is part of the problem you're trying to solve um, the problem of a patient trying to find the right provider for themselves? Exactly. So that's not what we're doing initially because we need to build a network of providers with it. So uh, as a company, we need to have these providers within our network. So then we can, whenever we start reaching to patients uh, and helping them find the right treatment for them or find the right provider for them, we want to have that network of providers already built. Mm. So that's why when choosing where to start, do we start with the, on the, on the more on the earlier part patient journey, we're starting actually with providers and then extending to patients because we feel like we need these providers within our network to then being able to, and we're starting geographically because of that same re reason that you just uh, said. If we start with a region like Boston, we have a providers in the Northeast who can target PCPs and therapists that uh, recommend or, or actually guide people to specialists. Yeah, Boston's known as this mecca for healthcare. Is it also, would you say the same for mental health? Uh, so it is, so there are three areas in the country and they're pretty easy to guess with the highest mental health providers, the Northeast, uh, the West Coast, and, and Texas. But the, the, then there's another big issue, which we're not necessarily uh, in that space, but is the need for mental health uh, resources in, in, in the rest of America, which is not what I just mentioned now. It's like, what happens between these two coasts? Mm. Uh, you look at the numbers of psychiatrists in the U.S. and they're going down. 
as mental health, like the, the pre-pandemic estimates were already daunting. And you see, and then I speaking to, a, a, to another founder last week, a couple, actually a couple of weeks ago, where she said, she's a, she's a medical doctor and she said, those estimates are wrong because the pandemic is going to take such a, such a big toll on, mental, on people's mental health. Yeah, and you're already seeing that. So what are, I guess, as a business, what are some of the biggest roadblocks you have come against? Either with customers or building a team or investment, what have been your biggest headaches <laughs> so far? So I think every area has a headache, uh, mm -hmm. but I would say at least some of them, like building a team, mm -hmm. they have such a fulfilling um so you can see building a team as a roadblock. And I think the moment we, we got some funding at the beginning of the year and I said, okay, let's start building a team and building and build a product. And even though the task might feel daunting, it's like, where do we start? Like, who do we, how do we make sure we bring the right person? Once you start seeing all those pieces fall into place, that is so rewarding. And I realized I learned so much and how important it is to bring people that worked with others before and, and they, they recommend others. And that means because they worked with that other person before and they feel they, they, they know that the work that they're going to produce together is high quality work. And I realized that was one of the, a very important lesson to me. And in the end, seeing how that team has been working for the past like eight, nine months, how they've been delivering and they brought in more people because we grew and we brought in like a, a full-time backend developer and, uh, and started bringing in more people and the team grew. Seeing how well they work together, that is so rewarding. So is that's back to your question. Yeah, it's one of those roadblocks that you see at that time, but once you get past that hump or that, it can be a hump or it can be a mountain, depending on how challenging it was. It, 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 there's a sense of satisfaction that I think it makes it totally worth it. Mm. How big is your team now? So we are about eight, nine people working on this, uh, gotcha. all from like clinical people. We have a clinical team where we have a, a psychologist, a psychologist who's also a data scientist, who's super, like a really good fit for us. Uh, we have people from Massachusetts, uh, Mass General, um, Mass General Hospital, and, and then the product team. We have designers, product manager. Um, yeah, so it's a pretty diverse team in terms of skills and, and backgrounds. So it's a very, very rewarding experience to be working alongside very, a very talented team. Yeah, sounds like it. And you have a co-founder, right? Yeah, that's right, Evan. Nice. Who's a How did... biomedical engineer. And I actually met him at the, at the School of Engineering. Um, when I was like exploring this space, I learned that Evan had worked at, a, at the Duke Medical School optimizing a treatment for depression, that it's a hardware treatment. And I went to him saying, hey, Evan, I know that you worked here. Like, can you share the experience? And we started sharing like our experience, like very different viewpoints around the space. Him coming from like, on the engineering side and I'm, I was coming more from like understanding more of the holistic view of the patient journey. And I think we make a really good team when it comes to balancing this yin yang, uh, where I tend to be more like big picture, high level, and he brings in all the like 
the small details and the technical backing for what we're building. Yeah, that sounds like a perfect fit, actually. Uh, one of the hardest things about working with a co-founder that you just met is the process of building trust. So how did yeah. you and Evan build that relationship over time and learn to trust each other as business partners? That is a fantastic question because I don't think that's something that you can force um, trust. I mean, at the beginning, I feel like there might be like a leap of faith and you get some sense of trust and you decide to move forward with a person. And I think you go through ups and downs and you see how like the other person deals with uh, pressure, change, uh, uncertainty. And when, when you see how that is being dealt with and how we both like help each other in those situations, I think that helps build trust. And it has, to, I don't think it goes beyond the co-founder. I think it goes with other people in the team as well. That is related to company culture. I find it very interesting when people like talk about their values or company culture and they talk and talk and talk about it. And I feel like it has to be, I think talking about it might put it out there, but if you don't live by those values and you don't breathe by those values and like leadership of the company everyone who's working with you is going to be looking at you as like, you should set the example. So as you behave, as you treat others, as you, and this goes back to like my days in filmmaking, like having people come to me and hug me and say like, I love working with you. And yeah, you learn, you learn to like fade, like recognize your mistakes and recognize and say, and be honest about like when you were wrong and be transparent, but like, you can't have one of your values be transparency and then you being hiding your company strategy or information. I'm actually very open with my whole team about our financial situation, about when we should bring someone into the team, when it's time to make maybe uh, actually part ways with some, someone in the team. Um, and I think I had several times where the team thanked me saying in, in well zoom meetings because that's how we meet these days saying hey thanks again for being so transparent and that's something that they voiced several times because they appreciate that level of transparency and honesty how did you learn to become a good leader and and you know learn to be so transparent and let everyone in on it? I mean, it sounds like as part of your core um, character, I guess you're you know you you've talked about being part of these different families, whether it's like part of a film crew or uh, in your MDE program. But it seems like you as a person, you appreciate that kind of building a family or community. How have you learned to be a good leader in a business setting? I'm pausing because it really inspired me to think and never thought about this. I did think that, uh, or I do think that being, you need to be aware of your actions. And I think self-awareness is one of those things. I'm not saying I've been good at it. I've been practicing to be, to be better at it. And when you're self-aware, um, you can realize how your actions impact others and it's not necessarily avoiding to make mistakes also. It's, it's if you're self-aware and you know that you made a mistake is correcting those and apologizing for those. And I think 
people are not going to blame you for the mistakes you make. They're going to blame you if you don't apologize, if you don't help fix them, if you don't recognize them. So I think that's one of the biggest things. And you learn, I think it just, by working with groups of people, you just like, I think it's a never ending growth experience. I'm not necessarily saying that I'm a good leader today, but it's like, you keep on, you keep on growing and you keep on learning. And I don't think that it ever ends. And I think that's one of the most rewarding things about being a founder and being working in such like tight knit groups. Yeah, for sure. And it helps that it's not your first rodeo, right? I guess, what did you take from your first experience running a business and also, um, you know, running a crew on set? And how did you fold that into your current role? This is one of those life instances where you think when you connect the dots, let's say, and going back to the film industry, how like how months of work go in, go into a film and by hundreds of people, sometimes even thousands in some cases, um, to make us, the audience, go through a memorable experience. And that's how I think um, Haika today, the work we're doing and, and all the work that's left to do. So one person and one patient can go through a memorable experience in the mental health care system. And that's sort of like my mindset. And I, it, even though like some people ask me, like they're so unrelated, the two industries. I mean, like we're creating content, we're creating an experience, we're creating, like we're designing a patient experience um, that's gonna help like improve outcomes, save money and make the system more efficient. But at the end, it all goes down, it all goes down to one person going through a memorable experience. I love that. I think that's the perfect thing to end on. <laughs> um, this has been wonderful. If people want to find out more about you or follow Haika, where can they find you? Oh, they can uh, find me on LinkedIn. Haika, the website is uh, Haika, H-Y-K-A.io. Uh, and they can also shoot me an email. It's Jero, uh, J-E-R-O, at Haika, H-Y-K-A.io. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a quite an interesting um, journey through down like memory lane. What's incredible about Jero is how down to earth and approachable he is, despite all his amazing accomplishments. What did you take away from today's episode? Let me know on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane, or shoot me an email at hello at insideoutwithjane.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave me a review on iTunes as it helps other people find the show. Thanks again for tuning in and I will see you next Tuesday.